Well, good morning. Good morning. How is everyone? Uh, listen, I uh, want to just start this morning with a simple verse of Scripture that just keeps coming and reverberating in my mind as we've been involved in this series on minor prophets. And it's found in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Does that ring true with kind of where we've been these last few weeks? And I appreciate so much Rick's message last week and, and Dan and, and, uh, and all of the messages in this series. Because uh, uh, it's, it's kind of been a challenge, hasn't it? Consider then, note then, the kindness and severity of God. I was uh, in Norman, Oklahoma <clears throat> this last week, and I'm talking with my grandson, Bo, who had been invited to a birthday party of a friend, and they had a bounce house. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to report that Bo made it through the party without incident this time, because I was quickly reminded in my conversation with him of what happened about a year before when he went to a similar birthday party and his dad, Sam, accompanied him and they had a bounce house. And Bo was having so much fun in the bounce house. He was about three, three and a half years old and clearly in that full autonomy phase, if you will. And he's enjoying the bounce house so much that when Father Sam says, it's time to go home, come out of the bounce house, he just looked at his father and just kept bouncing. And I'm telling this story because there's a lot of parents in this room. We've all been there, right? And so uh, Sam, uh, it, Sam and Jill, you know, my kids have done everything they can to avoid corporal punishment. They like to do timeouts. And so Sam started with, now, Bo, if you don't come out of the bounce house, you know you're going to be in timeout. And for a long time. And Bo just looked at Dad and just kept right on bouncing. And I don't know if Sam's next tact was to try the bribe like some of us. Like, now, Bo, if you'll come out of the bounce house, you know, you can have some of Dad's Diet Coke or something like that. But I'm just telling you, Bo would look straight at his dad and just kept bouncing. And then, so finally then, Sam pulls out the big guns. Bo? If you don't come out of the bounce house, you're going to get a spanking. Now, up to this point in Bo's life, he'd never had a spanking. I'm not sure he knew exactly what that was. But his dad was getting really stern with him and said, If you don't come out of the bounce house, you're going to get a spanking. And Bo looked at his dad and just kept right on bouncing. So Sam had to call time out for all of the kids in the bounce house. He had to crawl in and physically remove his son from the bounce house and then carry him to the car and put him in the car. And when they get home, he and Jill are talking and they decide that Sam is going to take Bo out to the pool house out back. And by the way, that's where... Deb and I usually stay when we go to visit. So I, I really hate that Sam made that the dungeon of darkness, you know, for, for my grandson. 
But Sam goes out and, and gives Bo his very first spanking. And that continues to be legendary in our family. Now, now you, all you have to do is just mention spanking, and Bo straightens up immediately. Right? Now, for a child, that may be difficult to understand. Right? Daddy loves me, but now Daddy is disciplining me. Daddy is, is hurting me. He's spanking me. That might be a little difficult for a three or a three and a half year old, but hopefully for those of us who are growing in relationship with God and in maturity and paying attention to this series that we're involved in, then we've come to appreciate the fact that our God is both kind and severe. And not without reason. Not without reason. But the kind of wrath and judgment that we've been looking at in these minor prophets, if, if, if we're going to be honest, it makes us a little uncomfortable at times, doesn't it? Wow. But it's clearly there in Scripture, isn't it? It forces us to take a look, and we will look at Nahum this morning. You see, Nahum, when we consider or we take note of the kindness and severity of God, or we look at the love and wrath complex, God is both loving and God expresses wrath. God is kind and he is stern. He is good. At the same time, he is severe God extends his kindness, his goodness to all who put their trust in him, who look to him, but sternly rejects those who reject him and his son, who refuse to believe in him. And Nahum casts these attributes of God, if you will, these characteristics, this nature of God, these, these natures side by side in his in his prophecy. So let's talk about Nahum. Verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So the, the oracle is clearly about Nineveh. The theme, the message of the book, the three chapters is that Nineveh is no more. Nineveh is doomed for destruction. Nahum receives this vision, this oracle from God. Now the word, or the name Nahum means comfort. Comfort, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Could these words be intended to bring comfort to some who have suffered, especially under the hand of, of the Assyrian army or Nineveh, its capital. The, the word oracle for a word expressed by God, you know, a, a clear word of, of God's speech to us 
through scripture also means burden. And we've talked about this along the way. An oracle is a burden. And there was a burden that was placed on Nahum that had to be shared, that had to be dealt with. You see, the, the role of the prophet was never easy, you know, in the life of Israel, was it? It always was a burden. It was a weight upon them. We're told little about Nahum other than his village was Elkosh. Now, I don't know about you. Most of us know where Oshkosh is, right? <laughs> by gosh, you know, Oshkosh, by gosh. You know, that's a town on, you know, kind of uh, east central part of Wisconsin on Lake Winnip what is it, Winnebago? Is that right? What? Winnebago? You been there? Oh, good. I've never been to Oshkosh, but I have a general idea where that is. But nobody knows where Elkosh was. There are some who theorize because the word, the name of the, the little Galilean town, Capernaum, that became Jesus, uh, you know, kind of headquarters for his operation. Capernaum means town of Nahum but it could have been another Nahum you're saying because all of the references in the book are to Judah and so I, I think it's probably clearer that Nahum and the little town of, of Elkosh were somewhere in the southern part of the kingdom so but we don't know but that's really okay what's important is the message he was a seventh century Prophet, prophet, during the height of the Assyrian Empire that's been referenced the last several weeks. And we can narrow down the time in which he lived fairly easily because in chapter 3 he mentions the, the Assyrian conquest of Thebe, uh, the, an Egyptian city that was conquered in 663. And so if he mentions it in his book, then it, he had to have been a prophet after 663. And before the fall of Nineveh, or the first attack on Nineveh by the, the Babylonians, around 626 or 625. So it narrows it to about a 35-year span. So I would suggest to you that he was a prophet during the days of Manasseh, after the good king Hezekiah came Manasseh, his son, who was one of the worst kings ever in Judah. Terrible. He, he, he led Israel into sorcery, into witchcraft, divination, he consulted with mediums. He, he desecrated the temple that was in Jerusalem by offering pagan sacrifices on it. He led the whole nation into idol worship and led them astray. And the chronicles of, of, of history, Old Testament history, record that he and his son Amnon were the worst kings in all of the life of Judah. 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the, na than, than the nations when God had, that God had destroyed before the people of Israel. 
the worst evil ever. But there is an interesting end to Manasseh's story. If you read to the end of chapter 33, you will discover that near the end of his life, he had a miraculous conversion. He did. He, he was miraculously converted and came back to, you know, to the gods of Judah, to his God. And, um, and, and his life was changed. And he began immediately to change Judah and to clean up Judah. Judah. But at the, time that, at the time that Nahum is prophet, he's prophet during this time of challenge under, under uh, Manasseh. Okay. Right. So now for my outline this morning, I'm going to work backwards with you for just a moment. If you would permit me to do that, you have to. I'm up here. So you, you just have to kind of go along. All right. But I want to start at the end of the book and I want to answer the why. Why is Nineveh doomed for destruction? Why is Nineveh no more, if you will? And then I want to talk about in chapter two, the how. How does that happen? And then in chapter 1, the, the who. The who done it, if you will. You see, Nineveh will receive the reckoning of God for two reasons. Number one, because of its size and power. Now, you may remember that there were, there were two books in the Old Testament that were dedicated to the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. There were two books. What was the other one? Jonah. A hundred years earlier, Jonah, after being vomited up by the whale, decides he's going to be obedient, goes into Nineveh and preaches, and there is a great revival 100 years earlier under Jonah. And Jonah, <laughs> he, he didn't want revival. He, he wanted Nineveh, Nineveh to be destroyed. And, and, and he wasn't ready for the movement of the Spirit of God among the Ninevites. And, and, and so he sat down and, and he sat under a, 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 this gourd that was growing over him for shade. And he, and he just sulked, didn't he? And interestingly enough, these two books in the Old Testament that reference Nineveh, that are addressed to Nineveh, both end with a question. They're the only two books in the Bible that end with a question. But here's the question that God poses to Jonah. He said, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I'm trying to figure out why that's doing that too. Okay, can you still hear me? Check the connector on the pack. Better? We're going to try to keep that from popping, obviously. Maybe the enemy's showing up because, you know. Yes, that is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I listen to her always. Nineveh, you see, was the largest city in the world at the time. Now, think back when the population of the world back 
you know, in, in B.C. times, right? Uh, it was the largest city in the world at the time. It was 60 miles in circumference. The, the, the walled part of that city was about eight miles, eight miles long, and it had 15 gates and 12,000 towers on it. And the wall was so high that, you know, it was almost, it was impenetrable. It, had, it was wide so that three chariots could, could be driven abreast around the walls of the city. It had taken over 10,000 men 12 years to build. It was a huge fortified city. And there was a whole series of Assyrian kings that commanded the fighting forces, the military machine that was Assyria, that was so savage, so aggressive, so you know, and committed such atrocities that one historian noted that in that secession of eight kings, which was over 150 years, it was like having eight Adolf Hitlers in a row. They bragged. They bragged that there was not ground enough to bury the corpses of their victims. They built huge pyramids of human skulls as monuments to their conquest. Okay, we'll try this. That's the, here's the why, okay? Read chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 with me. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Their vile evil terrorized even to the outer boundaries of the known world at the time. Look at verse 19 toward the end. All who hear the news about you Clap their hands over you for whom, upon whom, has not come your unceasing evil. Your unceasing evil. There's the why. What about the how? What's neat about chapter 2, and we're... We don't have time to really get deep into this. But what's neat about chapter 2 is that, is that Nahum describes about 20 years before it happens almost exactly how it happened. Isn't that interesting? And it's probably the reason why Nahum's prophecy was included in the canon because his prophecy came completely true. Nahum records in some detail that at first the, 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 the red you know, uniforms of the, of the soldiers and their shields begin to surround the city. And then there are 
the, the, the glitter of chariots, you know, racing around the, you know, the city. And the, the king calls for his elite guard to man the walls, but they are not prepared. They are in disarray and they are over each other. And the, and the Babylonians dammed up the river that ran into the city of, of, uh, of Nineveh, and then they, then they broke the dam, released it, and it burst the gates of the, of the, uh, of the city open and, and collapsed part of the wall, even collapsed part of the wall of the, of the, uh, of the palace. And, and one of the first to be captive was the queen herself. All of it right there in chapter 2, he's telling you how it happened. And it came true just as he Described. Let's talk about the who did it. The who. It was the Lord of the universe, wasn't it? Nahum makes it plain that it is not the army of Babylon who would be the next great power on the rise in the region. It was not Babylon who was going to take out Nineveh. It was the Lord God himself. God graciously reveals himself to Nahum in four statements that he makes about himself, about his immutable character, his divine nature, his virtue, if you will. Now, believe it or not, Nahum is considered the poet laureate of the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? He only wrote three chapters. And let you will see him mentioned again and again as the poet laureate of the Old Testament because of the, the beauty of the language and the poetry of his language. And these verses that appear in the, the first 11 verses in chapter 1 are an acrostic that used the first letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so because of the you know because of the beauty of and the construction of his sentences because of this acrostic he's often called the poet laureate of the old testament but here let's look at these four things these four statements that god makes first of all god is a jealous god god is jealous the lord is a jealous and avenging god look at verse 2 the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he, and he keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, all three words that you find there in that sentence, jealous, avenging, wrath, you know, in our common usage have a kind of negative connotation, don't they? Really. He is a jealous God. And if we are caught on the wrong side, we may experience his vengeance or his wrath because of the purity of his love, the intensity of his jealousy for relationship with his people. Jealousy, you see, is a sin if it means we are envious of what others have and we want to possess something that others have. It is a virtue if it means we cherish what we have and we want to protect it, guard and protect it. A faithful husband and wife 
are jealous over one another and do anything and everything they can to keep their relationship exclusive. We learned last week from Rick's fine message of, on Hosea that the Lord is married in covenant marriage relationship with Israel. He is rightly jealous over that relationship. And since God has made everything there is and he owns it all, he owns it all, he is not envious of anyone, is he? It's all his already. He is jealous over what is his. He will protect what is his. Since he's the one true God, he is jealous of his name, jealous of his glory over the worship and honor that are due him and him alone. Our God is a jealous God. The second commandment. God prohibits the worship of idols or anything like it, any image that could be made, and he backs it up. He backs up that prohibition with this reason. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Second, God is long-suffering. Look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His anger and his wrath is not out of control. He does not fly off the handle, does he? It is measured. It is appropriate. He patiently waits for you and I to hear his word, to repent to change our minds and to get in step with him. He is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. His patience, though, has its limits. As Nineveh will soon see, Nahum says. He is long-suffering. Consider the kindness and the severity of God. He is sovereign. That's the third thing. He is sovereign. He answers to no one but himself, Nahum says. Look at the beautiful language in verses, the end of verse 3 and, and through verse 6. Great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. And he rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. He dries, dries up the rivers. Basham and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. And the hills melt. The earth heaves before him. And the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the wrath or the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. He has his way, and his way is best, and he is in, Nahum says, total control. He is sovereign. Who can stand before him in his anger? 
in his judgment. He is sovereign God. He uses the force of nature, anything he wills and wishes, because he's sovereign. And lastly, he is good. Aren't you glad we got there? <laughs> yeah. He is good. Beginning with verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows. And that word means he has intimate and personal knowledge. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Are we in times of trouble? You ever find yourself in the, you know, in, in what... I like to call the deep weeds. He knows us and he himself is our refuge. God doesn't provide a place of refuge. Scripture says he himself is our refuge. He himself is our stronghold. He himself is our rock. It's consistent throughout Scripture. And we are encouraged in our time of need, in our time of deep trouble, to seek him and him alone because he is our refuge, our stronghold. In the verses that follow, he, he delivers a second oracle against the scheming and evil plotting leaders of Nineveh. And in it, God promises that uh, that Judah, that, that Judah will be freed from the yoke of oppression and slavery to Assyria and to Nineveh once and for all, you know, once and for all and complete. And then in verse 15, listen to what Nahum writes. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, your worship, he's saying, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the, the, the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He's telling us to be watchful, to be waiting for the news. You see, back in ancient times, news had to travel by courier. And, and it would be typical at the end of a great battle, like was being fought north of Judah up in Assyria, that as soon as that battle ended, a courier would be dispatched to run, you know, to all points, and, you know, couriers in every direction. And a courier was going to come to Judah, Nahum is saying, and if you will watch and wait, then the courier will come. If you, you will see upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace. Paul picks up that same idea. In Romans chapter 10. Let's read it together. 
Here's the gospel in Nahum. You ready? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches upon all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in, in, him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without preaching, without someone to share the message? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring, who preach the good news. Consider the kindness and severity of the Lord. That's what this table's about. The wrath of God the sternness, the severity of God against sin is dealt with on the cross. We read it, you know, in the call to worship. He laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All the wrath of God was directed into one person, a sinless, perfect sacrifice for us so that we could come to this table and experience the love, the grace, the kindness, the goodness of God. Okay, what's the bottom line? Folks, God takes our sin seriously. He will expose and deal with our sin. You know, it's one of the things in chapter 3 about Nahum says to Nineveh, he says, you know, God's not just going to bring you down and defeat you. He's going to embarrass you publicly. He's going to strip you naked. He's going to expose your nakedness in the streets. You see, because we either humble ourselves before God or we force him to what? Humiliate us. God takes sin seriously. It was one of the lessons that I learned as a young believer, very early as a young believer. I came to Christ and gave my heart to him when I was 21 years of age in a and, and a, a dentist in our town who was a godly guy who had heard about my conversion uh, offered to pay my way to this institute. It was called the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. Any of y'all remember that? Yeah, it was, that was around like, you know, it was like, well, I mean, I've been a follower of Christ for like, you know, 45 years. But anyway, but, uh, but so, I mean, in my, like, I'm just months into this relationship with Christ and I, and I go to this institute and I'm, and it's just this very intense Bible study kind of a, an environment. And on the very first night, the speaker gets up and, and he talks about clearing the conscience. You know, that if you're conscious and aware of sin and patterns of sin in your life, you know, that, that you know, what steps you take to clear the conscience and, you, and, and make amends 
for those things where, you know, because God is a God of who's holy and just, you know, whatever. And so I, I came under conviction. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't remember a whole lot what happened the, in the next two or three days. But, you know, I went home from that conference knowing, oh, man, being very much aware of my sin, my sinful past. You know, as a, and I, you know, I was only 21 years of old, but, you know, I'd had some rebellious years. And so right after that conference was over, I sat down and I made a list of eight or nine young ladies that I was going to have to go to and I was going to have to ask forgiveness from. And, um, and you know, I, I rehearsed that. I need, you know, the Lord has convicted me. I've, I've now put my faith in him and I'm a Christ follower and he's convicted me that I didn't treat you with the dignity and, and, and respect that you deserved as a young woman. And I'm very sorry about that. I want to ask your forgiveness. So I kind of rehearsed and I went one by one to, you know, to these gals that were in, you know, that I was in college with because I mean, I was in my junior year and, um, and, and one that I had to go back that was in high school and, uh, and so, um, so I, I found eight out of nine of those, but there was one gal that I couldn't find and, uh, she had apparently transferred to some other school. She was no longer in the dorm. And, uh, so I just, you know, I did what I could and I just forgot about it. Right. And then God led me into seminary and, and into ministry. And, uh, and I was in student ministry for a number of years for about 20 years and I'm, I'm uh, in student ministry at Stephen F. Austin State University. And one day, I'm sitting in my office, and a student comes walking in my office and, uh, and, and sits down and says, he said, you know, we, our church just called a new pastor, and the pastor's wife says she knows you. Really? Who? Her name's Roseanne. Wow. It's been 20 years. You know what I did? It was a Wednesday. Back then, they had Wednesday night church. I went to that church on Wednesday night, and I found Roseanne, and I pulled her aside, and I said, Roseanne, it's taken a long time for this conversation to happen, but God has given me the opportunity to complete something that he started 20 years ago. I need to ask your forgiveness for the way I treated you in college. And she forgave me. But you know what? God taught me. Dave, I take sin seriously. Dave, I brought that full circle because I want you to, I, I never want you to forget, you know, that when you do harm, you come to me and you receive forgiveness for that. But then you'll need to go to the other person. You'll need to complete that work of grace. You need to be the peacemaker. Blessed is the one who comes bearing good news, the gospel of peace, being the peacemaker. Listen, I don't know what God's doing in, in your life, but I got a sense that through this series that he's challenging our socks off here. Okay, And so maybe before we come to this table today, 
Richard's going to come and lead us in communion. You need to quietly just reflect on and allow the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to do some work in your heart, to expose sin in your life and say, you know, God, you are God who is kind and gracious. You know, and, and Christ, you have taken my, you know, my, the wrath that was meant for me upon yourself. I'm saying, but there's some things that I need to make right with you. And there's some things that I need to also make right with some others. On the basis of what I understand you, Holy Spirit, are doing in my life right now. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for living a sinless, guiltless, perfect life so that you could be that sacrifice for us. So that you could take the wrath of God. We remember how on your cross you cried out in pain and agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? feels like you are turning your back as the sins of the world are stacked up laid upon you and then we remember that with your last breath you shouted to Telestai it is finished and it was a cry of victory centuries ago the courier came to Judah to Jerusalem to announce that victory had been won that Nineveh was defeated but today as we look at this altar with the bread and the cup that is laid before us we are reminded that that victory was secured for us at the cross once and for all and for all time wow thank you for that Would you prepare our hearts, Lord? Convict us where we need to be convicted. Help us to be honest with you. Help us even to be honest with others about the struggles, about the sinful patterns in our life, about the struggles that we are currently involved in. Help us to acknowledge you, your lordship in our life, as a jealous God who deserves our worship, who deserves everything that we have to offer, but who gives back riches and grace and goodness. Uh, We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.